G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni and I'm all of the above and joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Jemina Stewart-Smith. She's a research fellow at University of Tasmania and also a CSIRO affiliate and has worked with Red Maps. And today she's going to be talking all about handfish. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be here. So how did a passion for handfish start for you? Well, I guess I started uh, diving with them around 11 years ago. I was doing doing some volunteer work for a citizen science program called Reef Life Survey based here in, it's based here in Hobart, but they've really got global reach. And uh, we were doing surveys at a a site that was known to have red handfish, but they were thought to be in such low numbers and they're quite rare and quite cryptic. So we weren't really sure that we were going to find any. So my first encounter was diving along a transect line and searching amongst the reef amongst seaweed looking for these tiny little fish that I just didn't think I'd see and and I really clearly remember seeing my first one as I parted this seaweed and it was just kind of sitting right there in front of me looking up at me and we had this moment where we were just kind of had this standoff staring at each other and and that was kind of my first experience with handfish and and to be honest I I did a little bit more volunteering with handfish through a spotted handfish program here in Hobart as well but but then it had been kind of several years before I got back into it and, and started working with them again around about two years ago. I love how like you just, you know, have like an eye to eye encounter. I can just picture it now being like, whoa, it's staring at you, you're staring at it. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird moment, but, but very cool. I mean, they're quite unusual looking. I guess they're interesting little sea creatures. You know, they have these strange, they're strange looking little fish with these modified sort of pectoral fins that they use to walk around on the seafloor rather than swimming and their faces are quite unusual they've been compared to sort of to creatures like toads or this mix of like a toad and a fish so they're kind of quite quirky and interesting looking yeah and so tell us like what exactly they are because they're a species of anglerfish i believe or how do they differ from normal anglerfish yeah, so they're, they're a small, rarely seen marine fish and they dwell on the seafloor. They measure, they're quite small in that they, they measure no more than about 15 centimetres and that's the biggest. Most are actually much smaller than that. And they're comprised, they comprise a, a family of 14 species and they've changed very little in the last sort of 50 million years. So they're really an incredibly ancient lineage of fishes. But yeah, they're, they're related to anglerfish and they possess the rod and lure or the elysium and the esker, which is the structure on top of their head that most people are familiar with from anglerfish. And for anglerfish, they use that for, you know, as a fishing lure to attract prey, but we haven't actually readily observed that behaviour in, in handfishes, so we're not too sure. I mean, we assume that's what they use it for, but we haven't actually seen it. But on top of that, they lay eggs, so they have approximately somewhere between 80 and 250 eggs, depending on species, and they, they guard their eggs until hatching, uh, which is several weeks. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a pretty cool or unusual behaviour, really, for fish in general isn't it like hang around and guard their eggs yeah that's right and it can be with spotted handfish it's around six to eight weeks that they guard their eggs so it's quite a long time to be sitting alongside a 
a batch of eggs and, and be quite vulnerable to things that might be nearby. And, and when the babies hatch or the juveniles hatch, they don't have a planktonic larval stage. So they, they just hatch as fully formed tiny little ham fish. You know, they're several millimetres long at that point and just sort of walk off into their new habitat. That sounds like the cutest thing ever because I mean just to you know kind of get a picture describe to us like like what kind of colors they are and like you know how big their hands are and stuff yeah so the the main ones that I work on are the red and the I guess the red the spotted and the zebels have been the focus of our research and the red handfish they're called red handfish but they can be you know a, a variety of colors sort of reds and pinks and they don't have tr- scales like traditional fish they kind of have warty skin and they have their pectoral fins which are their hand-like protrusions kind of sit at the bottom of their body and they've got roundish faces with an upturned kind of frown so very different looking fish the spotted handfish obviously are a little bit bigger the average size is and they have spots or markings alongside of their bodies and zebels can be a, a variety of different colour morphs, but nobody's seen them for around, uh, I think, 15 years um, was the last time a zebels handfish was spotted. Wow. Do you actively go out and look for the zebels or do you believe they're still there or are they have they passed, unfortunately? We're not too sure. I mean, we do have a lot of survey data and we have actually run surveys um, in particular through the Reef Life Survey Program that have targeted areas that they were last seen. And we know of divers that frequent areas that they were last seen and, and none of them have seen them for that time. So we're we're really not too sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you mentioned just before, like they kind of like, you know, you kind of pull back something and there it is. So where do they where do they actually sit and live within the reef? Yeah, well, the red handfish and, and zebels live on reefs. So the red handfish are sort of in quite shallow areas, so anywhere from a metre to 20 metres. Most of our, our two last, the sites that we work out, they're really quite shallow. They're sort of between one and, and five metres. And they're just tucked in amongst seaweed and seagrass. So they really are in the bottom of, on the seafloor. The spotted handfish are a little bit, live in different habitats. So they're on sandy, silty areas just out in the Derwent estuary. A little bit easier to find if you're looking for handfish because you don't have to search amongst seaweed. Zebels handfish are a little bit deeper. They they get down to, I think it's around, oh, maybe around 20 or 30 metres, but they're on sort of sponge kind of reefs. Okay. And they, correct me if I'm wrong, they form kind of colonies do they? Or there's like congregations? They don't really trans- move very far? Uh, they definitely don't move very far. And that's one of the things that's kind of making it difficult for them. So as I mentioned, they don't have a planktonic larval stage and their locomotion is by walking. So they really can't disperse very far. And they are in, in these kind of little patches, you know. So so the red handfish patches, you know, are sort of the remaining areas are around, you know, half the size of a soccer field and they're all kind of in this one area. Spotted handfish are also kind of grouped in these little populations throughout the Derwent estuary and beyond. What causes the, the boundary? Is there a set boundary that the handfish live in and they don't cross or why don't they kind of, why aren't they growing bigger populations? Yeah, for red handfish, it's quite clear. So the the reef areas that they're in, they're bordered by um, or they're impact, being impacted by urchins. So native urchins have increased in those areas. They're eating the seaweed that the red handfish need for, you know, to lay their eggs on and to shelter underneath. And so the urchins are effectively, I guess, forming these barrens either side of the population and kind of moving in. And we've been doing quite a bit of work around not just monitoring the urchins, but trying to keep numbers under check by doing removals but yeah it is it is quite a a serious situation for the reds in that they are essentially running out of habitat because it's being consumed by urchins 
Yeah, and just briefly, I know it's a little can be a little bit controversial, but what is causing the urchin boom? Well, typically you get you know when you get released from predators, you get you know increases in urchins. So you know uh, lack of large lobsters that eat that eat urchins is a likely cause. I mean we don't have exact data on for the red handfish population areas, but that's certainly something that's likely impacting them. And so speaking of like urchins eating seaweed and stuff, what do handfish eat? Well, we're not too sure. Like. Um, we know that they eat small invertebrates and, and mollusks, and I do have some records of, I think they're in captivity, red handfish eating other smaller fish, but we don't, I mean, we don't have any extensive, you know, stomach content studies because they just, most of the species are just such so poorly, poorly known and, and understood. Yeah, and I guess, like, I just know from, like, looking at other species of anglerfish, you, it is so hard to see them eating. It is something you'll never see because they just, as soon as they see you coming, they, they just hide away. The ultimate camouflager. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they are, you know, that's the thing. They are ambush predators. So they just sit and wait for their prey to come by rather than actively moving around to find them. Uh, we have had some in captivity over the past year or so. And and so we've been feeding them uh, invertebrates, you know, amphipods and stuff that we collect from the wild. So we do, we have had the opportunity to watch them feed in there. And it's quite a slow process because they, they sort of sit there and wait for something to come right in front of them before they launch at it. Yeah, so they're not actively like walking around seeking stuff. They just kind of yeah, wait absolutely. and yeah. hide. And so you mentioned the red handfish is kind of hemmed in by this urchin barren. But what about the spotted handfish? The spotted handfish is restricted to areas around the Derwent and Entrecasteau Channel. They're in these sort of discrete populations and they have, you know, I think some of the, the factors that are impacting spotted handfish are, are similar and revolve around habitat degradation and a variety of factors around their historical Fishing has likely impacted the habitat that they live in. I have to ask, what are some of uh, so you've got the zebels? Zebels, yeah. The red, the spotted. What are some of the other handfish that live around Tasmania? Because they are mainly around Tasmania and the south coast of Australia, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So they're all restricted to southeastern Australia and most species are found only in Tasmania. Although it's hard to talk about them like that. So there's these 14 species are I don't think I mentioned before, but we one of them has been uh, listed was listed as ex, being extinct last year, which is the first marine bony fish family on the planet to ever be listed as extinct. So it was quite a significant milestone. And as for the rest of the thirteen species, we've really only seen I think three in the past fifteen years. So lots of most of them we just don't have data or we don't have records or information on. So it, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to to know how to I guess, to know how to properly conserve them if we can't study them. Yeah. And so the, those other handfish, they're not seen commonly by researchers in like that part of Tasmania. Would there be bigger populations in less dived places or are they just extremely rare? Well, we're not too sure. So so I guess the, the, the other handfish species, they're a mix of either deep or shallow water species and they live on a variety of habitats you know they're either you know reef orientated or, or sandy silty areas but lots of the or many of the species we don't have I mean I think five of the species are known from fewer than five records so we just don't have a lot of information on them five of the species that are left are listed as data deficient on the International Union for the Conservation of Nature so we really we just don't have much information on them yeah, and that's that's one thing I always talk about with people is that, you know, land-based animals, it's so easy to quantify their populations, but ocean animals, you look and species that should be endangered or critically endangered, it, nothing happens because it just says data deficient. 
Yes, it's a it's certainly a lot lot harder to list to list species, marine species as as extinct or, or you know any of the categories than it is for terrestrial, generally speaking. And with the data deficient category too, in it, it in itself is a bit of a worry because it it really inhibits our ability to implement appropriate conservation strategies. You know, just because it's data deficient doesn't mean that, that it's okay. It just means we have no idea what's going on. And for the like the red handfish and the other handfish, what uh, conservation strategies are like we working on? And what what is yourself and IMAS Institute of Marine Antarctic Science doing to help these animals? Yeah, for red handfish, which is really the focus of my work and, and our priority at the moment, we're doing a whole bunch of things. Last year, we released a bunch of juvenile red handfish that we'd collected as eggs and kept in captivity at IMAS. Uh, we kept them for a year here at IMAS. We also had some that were up at our, with one of our industry partners up at Seahorse World in northern Tasmania. And those juveniles were part of what's known as a head starting program. The head starting program is the idea behind it is to bolster wild population numbers. And so while they're in captivity, you know, you keep animals in captivity, they're protected from things that might impact their survival in the wild. You know, there's no predators, there's no, there are no environmental adverse environmental conditions. And so what we did was we kept them for a year and then released them back into the wild. Uh, which was a really significant moment, but also super stressful. I mean, the whole year itself was really stressful because we hadn't done this sort of work with red handfish and because numbers are so critically low for red handfish. Now we're thinking that the population size is fewer than 100 adults globally, you know. So, so then taking eggs and keeping them into captivity in itself is a risk. So we did that last year. So we released, I think it was 42 juveniles back into the wild and we're now going back to resurvey them um, regularly and and I can report that as of a few weeks ago we we found some that we'd released and and so that represents reciting individuals up to 70 days so far post-release which is a really great sign I mean it's it's a great start but we really need that long-term monitoring data if we are to know that you know the program's doing well but on top of that we're doing a whole bunch of things we're continuing looking at urchin numbers and, and monitoring urchin numbers in, and implementing removals when needed yeah wow and so over the 70 days have the handfish grown much and how do you know they're the ones that you released yeah i haven't looked at the actual size data yet for the ones that we've recited but we as for how we know that they were ours we have a couple of ways first of all we take photos of the sides of their bodies and they have these spot patterns that are unique to individuals we actually can track them like that in the wild so we take a photo before they're released or we take photos of them while they're in the wild we've got some a software package that we run that through and it, it brings up you know likely hits and then we can match them so we did that but also with a subset of the juveniles we inserted a small tag which was kind of like a little tattoo on one side of the fish that we can use to make sure that you know to double check that they're the ones that we released Wow, cool. And I have to ask, do you name the individuals with the spots or are they just like handfish one? No, we do. Well, initially they're just sort of numbered like that, but we we launched a fundraising campaign around it a year or two ago for that reason, you know, to sort of engage with the public and because we knew that we could track individuals over time. So we we launched this program to help generate interest, but also to generate funds. So the idea is that people can, you know, name one of the handfish in the wild. And so people have been donating funds to be able to do that. And we've had some really funny ones. I think there's a, a fish named Irwin after Steve Irwin. And there's, you know, there's one called Uncle Marty after somebody's Uncle Marty. And, and you know, so it's kind of nice to be able to report back on that and say, you know, 
here's Uncle Marty that we haven't seen for the last three months kind of thing. Do citizen citizen scientists get out there and take photos of them for ID much or is that something that will happen in the future? For the ID part of it, it's generally, it's actually generally through our research. So we've got a student here, Tyson Vessel at the University of Tasmania, who's doing a mark recapture as part of his PhD. So a lot of the recaptures or the recitings are for his work. So we've really been running that for the university. We do ask people to send in sightings of particularly red handfish. You know, if, if people are to, to cite them in other areas, you know, we're looking for that kind of information and, of course, reporting things like, you know, possible zebra sightings. So that's all really helpful. Yeah, and I think we were chatting before the podcast. You mentioned there's two specific places where the red handfish live and that's it. Yeah, that's right. So that's all that we currently know. So they're both quite near to Hobart and quite near to each other. One of them has been, it's sort of the pop, the site that, that most locals know about and, and people have been diving for red handfish there for years. And then in 2018, we received a community sighting and discovered a second population nearby. Cool. Do you have any fun facts about handfish? I was looking and I came up almost with a blank but anything fun or any cool stories or things you've observed with them, even in the lab? So we had their eggs in captivity for a while and the eggs are laid in like a cluster or a group and they're connected by these fine filaments or like tendrils that are really thin and clear. It kind of looks like fishing line and they kind of wrap their eggs around these structures and and anyway, we had these eggs in captivity and we, you know, got to kind of once the eggs had hatched, we removed the empty egg cases and the tendrils are actually super, super strong. Like it was quite difficult to pull them apart sort of thing. But on top of that, I think it's also really interesting, you know, that the parents care for their eggs until hatching. And that in spotted handfish, we've observed evidence of egg guarding. So, you know, sea stars and other animals will walk close and the, and the handfish will actually do some kind of fin flicks and, and kind of move over to try and defend their eggs almost. Wow, that would be really cool behavior to see in the wild. Is, is that that would be in the wild? I take it. It is in the wild, and in captivity, we've kept the juveniles. So I told you we we kept juveniles in captivity for a year, and we did also see some fin movements that were sometimes directed at, at us. I think when we approached the tanks, and I don't know if that's some sort of form of aggression or, or something, but it was quite interesting. You know, just dipping their sort of dorsal fins at us and that sort of thing. Yeah, cool. If anyone is a diver or a snorkeler or something around Tasmania and they want to go look for handfish, what are some tips for finding them, even if you're not in a known location? What kind of tips would you have for them? It's kind of a tough one because, like I said, only three species have been observed in the past 10 years. If you're looking for handfish, you need to move really slowly, um, stick to the seafloor and just move carefully along. The spotted handfish in the Derwent estuary is perhaps the easiest one to see. It's generally easy to find. They're out in the open and in these sandy, silty areas. As I mentioned, the red handfish, they're small and they're tucked away in reefs and they're quite difficult to find. But if you're at they're looking yeah take it slow just move carefully and, and keep your eyes peeled yeah and, and just quickly what kind of depth would you be like seeing the mass usually red and spotted you're looking anywhere between a meter and sort of 20 meters well, spotted handfish get a bit deeper but the red handfish can be quite shallow i should have mentioned too that if you you know if you don't see them in the wild you can actually see them in captivity at sea life melbourne aquarium and seahorse world in beauty point in tasmania they're actually keeping those handfish as part of the captive breeding program that was initiated through the csiro cool and i know some fish or some any animals can have trouble 
breeding in captivity. How are these ones going? It's very difficult, actually. One of the one of the tough things about it is that we can't tell males and females apart, so it's difficult to initiate a proper breeding program around that. So it's really been trial and error up until now. Sea Life Melbourne Aquarium, we were able to do some ultrasound of some adults that they had recently in their aquariums and figure out, you know, which had eggs and, and which didn't kind of thing. But it's something that we're trying to work on, you know, providing the right sort of area and habitat and conditions for them to be able to breed. Cool. And one last really nerdy marine question I have to ask is, if we can't physically see the difference between the genders, how do the handfish tell? I don't, uh, we're not too sure. It could be, there could be olfactory cues might be one of the, the things that they actually have quite large nostrils for the red handfish to at least for the size of the fish. So we think that cues like that, olfactory cues might be important in, you know, finding each other and perhaps other uh, mate selection as well. But yeah, we're not too sure at this point. Hmm. Well, that's, um, I'll look forward to research in the next decade or two as to uh, the sex of uh, handfish. But thanks heaps for being on the show today. And if anyone wants to learn more about the work you do and the Handfish Project, where should they go and what should they do? Cool. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yep, you can follow us on, we've got a website, handfish.org.au. We've got a Facebook page, just look for the Handfish Conservation Project. And on Twitter, we're at Handfish Project. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography or on my webpage, mtunderwatermedia.com. If you like the show, please tell a friend and visit our Instagram page, Sea Creatures underscore podcast, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Sea Creatures Podcast. And that's where you can help support the show and maybe land some cool stickers. Production assistance by Georgia McGrath and music by the fantastic Dan Musel. You can hear more of his music by visiting Dan Musel Music on Instagram, all one word. Tune in next time to hear all about manta rays with Charlie and Duncan, two underwater photographers who have spent a bit of time with the amazing creatures. This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast, over and out. <laughs>